Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am back in Philadelphia's headquarters today, joined by an uh, distinguished, (laughs) extinguished, (laughs) distinguished panel, extinguishing fire, distinguished panel of fire staffers. To my right is Will Creeley. He's been a regular on the show, Senior Vice President of Legal and Public Advocacy. Welcome back. Thank you, Nico. And uh, next to him is my twin today, wearing the the new fire fleeces. Uh, One of us has to change. Yeah, (laughs) I've got a fire shirt under this. I guess I could have. Warren, but um, Adam Steinbaugh is our director, of course, of our Individual Rights Defense Program. Hello. And this is your first time on the show? It is. Yeah, you've been on a couple of our fireside chats before, but this is the first podcast one. That's correct. Yeah. And next to next to him, across the table, is uh, Marika Tothill-Bakun. She's our director of litigation. I believe you've been on the show before. I don't think so, actually. Oh, man. A lot of first-timers here, <laughs> including Sarah, who is our senior program officer for legal and public advocacy. Welcome, everyone. So we, be so we just got back from the holidays, and we have a lot of exciting news to cover, especially on the litigation front. We have two big settlements in our Stand for Speech litigation program, our Million Voices uh, campaign. I'm going to start with Will. Back yeah. in, in July of 2014, we ventured into the world of litigation kind yeah. of for the first time. Yeah, we filed four lawsuits on one day on the 1st of July 2014, way back then, if you can remember all that way back. So why didn't you guys do July 4th? You know, uh, <laughs> we had actually a lot of conversations about that, right? July is filled with momentous dates, um, and to maximize uh, the attention given to our new lit- litigation initiative, we thought the first was probably the best. Um, but there was a lot of discussion about it, <laughs> as you can imagine. Well, what was the purpose of the litigation program? Well, you know, when we first uh, started to discuss it, we examined FIRE's traditional uh, hesitation to litigate, and our thinking from the beginning, from way back, since before I was at FIRE, was that if we sue, uh, schools will not want to engage with us outside of the courtroom. And we valued our, the opportunity uh, to persuade schools uh, about their uh, wrongdoing or their, their rights violations uh, privately, and we still do that. Yeah, without the gavel hanging above that, their heads. That's right. Um, but a lot of them thought that we litigated Regardless. Well, we did begin coordinating litigation um, in some instances prior to launching our Stand Up for Speech litigation project. Um, but when we decided to, to start litigating cases and specifically sponsoring litigation uh, in, in a kind of focused and, and uh, programmatic way, uh, we did so because some schools were just persistent bad actors, right? Some schools did not want to be uh, persuaded, uh, refused to engage with us. And the rights violations we saw were so bad that we thought, you know what? We need another tool, and that. And tool why was were they? Why were they unwilling to engage with us? Is it the fact that they would just do the liability calculus, and they thought that sure. you know there's more likelihood that they would get sued for perhaps um, being under inclusive on harassment issues? Or yeah, whatever. sometimes right. in the harassment case, you'd say you'd rather have the First Amendment lawsuit uh, or or risk the First Amendment lawsuit than the harassment lawsuit because the harassment lawsuit sure. perhaps is more likely than it's more likely. Yeah. Or there's a, a public relations calculus too. You can say, you know what. Um, Free speech just isn't big news, so we'll take the, the publicity hit uh, in, in order to censor critics uh, or dissidents or 
oddballs or whomever, you know, the wide variety yeah. of uh, uh, First Amendment plaintiffs. And I mean no disrespect to oddballs, critics, or, or dis <laughs> dissidents. In fact, we love you. We need you to, to, to keep doing the work that we do. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I think that it just was uh, another uh, arrow in our quiver uh, as an advocacy group, and it's been an effective one. Yeah, so what just happened at, well, let's set the scene. What, yeah. what are the facts at Chicago State, uh, Marika, if you want to kind of go over what happened there. It's, it was a, it, it preceded you yeah, in, yeah. in many ways. This is a four-year-old case. It was, a, it was a filed the year before I came to fire. Um, so it's been going on. Uh, the, and the underlying facts have been going on since uh, preceding 2014. Mm -hmm. um, this is a case of pretty much just straight up uh, censorship of criticism of a university administration. Um, this is Chicago State University, the, the former admini uh, administration of um, former president um, Wayne Watson, yeah. um, who's kind of infamous now. Um, in The subject of many lawsuits. Yeah, the subject of many, many whistleblower lawsuits. <laughs> Expensive lawsuits. Yeah, that have cost the university quite a bit of money over the years. Um, so there are several. Uh, there, there are plaintiffs in the in the case. Were two professors who started and wrote vociferously on a uh, a faculty blog so called like CSU Faculty yeah, Voice. Yeah, it was called the voice. CSU Faculty Voice, and then they just used it as you know their their outlet for raising their concerns over their perceived uh, the perceived corruption and, um, and issues with it with the administration and um, the administration got really pissed about this and basically just started going after the blog and trying to get it shut down. First, they sent a letter saying, oh, by the way, you're violating our tr uh, university trademark, so you have to shut down the website because you have pictures of these hedges at the front of the iconic like, hedges, the iconic hedges <laughs> from from campus that I think they had just like taken a picture of that say CSU yeah. and put it on their uh, like as the header on their blog and the school and the school wrote and said no that's violating our trademark so you have to take it down by the way this is also this is also violating our you know standards of civility and and professionalism so you also have to take it down for that reason. Um, there was a cyber bullying policy they, in there. Somewhere. They actually adopted they the cyber later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were... the cyber bullying policy is kind of a way to try and go after the, the two professors who were our plaintiffs and the the blog. So yeah, that was after the the two professors were like, uh, basically, forget you. We're not taking down our blog. Can I can I just quote <laughs> from that cyberbullying policy because this is so bad? It says any communication it banned any communication which tends to embarrass or humiliate. And you know, if that's the standard, you might as well just shut down the whole damn internet. <laughs> well, the, in this case, it was applied outside of right. Like they they cited something that one of them said. In person. In person. Yeah. yeah. They, it was it was uh, the then human uh, human resources uh, head at CSU filed a complaint against one of the plaintiff professors and uh, on uh, for violation of the cyberbullying policy for some like something he said in person that have allegedly offended her. Hmm. Is this like a unique case? How often do we see these sort of trademark policies? Abused, Adam. Do you get a lot of case submissions <laughs> on this front? Uh, I think we're seeing more of them. I don't know if it's a, a blip on the radar or an increasing trend, uh, but universities are 
institutions that are concerned about uh, protecting their intellectual property, uh, and they can be overzealous in that uh, at times, and they can also view intellectual property as a tool to uh, show critics that they are responding to offensive speech or offensive groups. So, for example, this year we saw uh, the University of California, Los Angeles, uh, assert its trademark rights against a uh, National Students for Justice in Palestine uh, event that was happening on campus. Um, and we also saw them go after a, a critic of the university who was running a website uh, criticizing the university and had pictured one of the buildings on campus. Uh, and he, or the university, you know, wrote to him, uh, and they were suggesting that uh, the picture of the building was part of their trademarked image. I mean, is there any veracity to that? I mean, these, in this case, we're talking about public universities that I'm assuming you can take pictures of from the sidewalk. I mean, do they have? Do like they have edges you can take? Pictures yeah, for of example, from the sidewalk. Trademark law recognizes that you can use your First Amendment rights to criticize the marks and to use marks uh, in a critical context. Uh, it's different if you are, uh, for example, selling products with the university's uh, logo or uh, something on it. That might be a, a bit closer to the line. But if you are criticizing the university and you are employing the marks of the university. Uh, you know, that's, for example, uh, a university's name is often trademarked. You can't really criticize a university without being able to use their name. Otherwise, any news outlet that reports on a university would be violating the mark. Exactly. So you have to have some ability to use the mark uh, as a path to criticizing. Mm -hmm. Or even just discussing exactly. some things that happen there. Okay, so the case is settled now. What so, happens? Yes. Yeah, so they, well, it was a, I, I'm not even going to go into what happened in the litigation itself because we would all fall asleep immediately. There's a reason it's a four-year-old case. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. been, the case it's is just kind of been dragging kid. on forever and ever and ever um, for various reasons, but it was, it was proceeding, uh, it, it was still proceeding, and eventually um, CSU recently, uh, we negotiated a settlement with them. Um, there is a new administration, presidential administration in place. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Possibly does. One of, you know, uh, that would, it's just speculation, but eventually they did, we did negotiate a settlement. Um, that was just finalized at the very end of last year. And they are going to, um, completely re, revise their cyberbullying policy and a computer usage policy, which were the two policies that they were trying to employ against the professors to shut down their, their criticism of the university and that we challenged in the lawsuit. So those policies are, are gone. They're going to be replaced with uh, policies that we've kind of worked with them on the language for and that we've vetted. Um, so that's a great result. Um, and they're also going to pay $650,000 in attorney's fees and damages for uh, the work that the attorneys and uh, the attorneys have done on over four years on the case um, and damages for the plaintiffs. Yeah, and on that note, one of the professors wrote a really interesting piece for yeah. the uh, AAUP's uh, academe blog, uh, which you can find online, where he expresses his real frustration that it took this long. Uh, that the bill to the university, and since it's a public university, ultimately the taxpayers of Illinois, uh, is so high. Uh, he's saying, look, we could have done this the easy way, right? You didn't have to come after us. Yeah. You didn't have to try and silence us. Fire wrote uh, the university, as we so often do beforehand. We, wrote, we filed the suit on July 1st. We wrote them in March saying, look, the law is clear here. 
um, you know, let, let's settle this quickly. But the case drags and on. And cheaply. For, and cheaply. And the case drags <laughs> or for on. for nothing. Let's right. settle this for zero dollars. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and some of the other cases we, we talked about, you know, CSU's previous administration uh, wound up on the losing end of a $2.5 million dollar uh, lawsuit with a former one of their former attorneys who blew the whistle um, uh, after refusing to withhold public records. You know, he, in other words, he followed the law and, <laughs> and blew the whistle and sued uh, when he was retaliated against for doing so. Uh, and CSU had also tried to censor their their student newspaper, so it wasn't just faculty blogs. I mean, this is just a bad actor. Who wrote that? Who wrote that blog post in uh, Academe? Was that Philip Beverly? Or, I think or it, Robert was, it was. I think it was Bob Professor. Be- uh, yeah, be yeah. Because right? we have a video. Chris and I went out. Um, it, was, it was you, Chris, right? Yeah. Yeah, we went out and uh, interviewed him about this case. So that should be uh, over at YouTube.com/slash/TheFireOrg. But this case came on the heels of another victory over at Pierce College in California, uh, the Los Angeles. College district, community, community college, college district. district. So, tell me a little bit about that one. That's a case that got a lot of um, local and national attention. Um, Chicago State got a lot of local attention, but this one was seemingly all over the place, including yeah. at the Department of Justice. Yeah, it was, a, and it's another case that's kind of dragged on for for a bit too, um, uh, but and is thankfully coming to a a happy conclusion. Um, yeah, this is a case at Los Angeles Pierce College. I think part of the reason it got so much attention was just because the facts are just pretty stark and Sim- egregious. Very simple facts. And yeah. also it's the largest community college district. It's, Pierce, large- it's like 150,000 students in, within the district. Right. And so, Pierce is one of nine yeah. colleges. Pierce is one of nine in the Los Angeles Community College District, and, which has, as you said, a, uh, over 150,000 students in it, largest community college district in the country. Um, and just had uh, on all of their community college districts kind of has rampant use of what we term free speech zones. Um, so in this case in particular, uh, the, our plaintiff, Kevin Shaw, um, who is a wonderful, wonderful person and, um, everybody should check out him on the Jim Jeffries show (laughs) doing the third party debate episode, which aired, I think on the night of the midterms. Um, well, well, let's try and get that. And I remember get that in the show notes, Aaron. Yeah, it's really yeah. it's it's hilarious, but also you can get an idea of just how awesome Kevin is as a wonderful libertarian, um, that local uh, local activist. Um, no so, free speech zone can hold Kevin. Yeah, yeah right? he's trying it's to it's hand not out possible. copies so, of the Constitution. So Kevin was walking around, or he was on campus on the kind of the main thoroughfare through the center of campus. Um, he's handing out copies, the incidentally Spanish language copies of the of the U.S. Constitution. Um, Call the cops. <laughs> and an administrator came up and said, "You can't be doing that. You need to um, one be distributing any uh, literature in our free speech zone, and two, you have to come with me and get a permit in order to use that free speech zone." And lo and behold, the free speech zone is like the size of a couple parking spaces put together on a you know, pretty yeah, large Aaron, community college. Aaron campus. did a video about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can kind of, there's a picture of the free speech zone. I mean, it's, it's like, we did, we, we did this like cool graphic at one point to illustrate the, the size differential. And it was like, if the campus was the size of a tennis court, the free speech zone was like the size of an iPhone on the tennis court. It was, it's. And not one of the big iPhones. No, no. This was like before, this, this was like before the 10, or before they like jumped up in size, whatever. Uh-huh. They, they were the old small phones. But um, 
Yeah, it was. So, so these facts were just really stark and egregious, and I think that just really kind of riled up the the the, the public. Um, you know, yeah, I got a lot of people, family and friends, once the uh, case broke, uh, asking me about it and being like, "I thought the whole country was a free speech zone." Mm-hmm. Um, I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> and and in that case, there was also. Uh, a settlement for um, attorney's fees, mm-hmm. and there was also policy revisions. Well, and also very significantly in January of this year, there, we also got an opinion from the district court in that case when it, it denied the defendant's motion to dismiss. That was one of the one of the few courts in the uh, federal courts in the country thus far to kind of squarely address this question of free speech zones of this use of free speech zones. And that court held that the kind of open, generally accessible areas of the of a campus are traditional public forum for like fora for student speech, and that the the use of a free speech zone, particularly like such a small free speech zone as we had on these facts, um, is a violation of uh, of the First Amendment. Um, so that's that's huge because that case that that opinion then reverberates out through both the you know that district that uh, federal district but also the rest of the country so that that puts other schools on notice that their free speech zones uh, do implicate the first amendment mm-hmm. and are opened up to challenges insofar as they're restrictive and don't allow for speech in open areas of campus right so I want to circle back to you here will Stand up for speech litigation program. We're still we still have a um, fire legal network, right? Where we yeah, refer sure cases. Do. So if we we have a lot of attorneys who listen to this show, how do they sign up for that legal? I'm network? glad you asked. Me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the fun things about litigating now in house uh, and having Marika and Bryn uh, do the work that they've so successfully done is that they get to team up with fire legal network attorneys, and it's a national volunteer network of attorneys who care about student and faculty civil liberties. You go to our website, you sign up, I send you a warm welcome letter, I add you to our, uh, to our list, and if we get a case that aligns with your interests and is in your uh, jurisdiction, we'll give you a shout. And if you want to work with us on a case, you know, we can make it happen. Or quite often we get cases that for one reason or another aren't a fire case. Maybe they involve a grade dispute, maybe they're you know, high school cases, maybe they're looking for something that's outside of our, of our um, Mission in those cases, I will also refer to the Fire Legal Network to see if hey, you're an you're an attorney, you're interested. This one isn't for us, but maybe it is for you. Yeah, uh, and I quite often do that. I I just have to give a shout out um, yes. to our co-counsel yeah. in the Pierce case. Beat me to it, um, Arthur Wilner, Wilner, who the great Arthur, um, the great Arthur. Arthur Wilner from Leader and Birkin in uh, Los Angeles. Um, who has just been such a fantastic partner to work with throughout this case, and has also taken a number of our cases in the past he has. from the uh, from our legal network referrals. Yep, successfully uh, won a case before we were litigating for um, a student at uh, no, an instructor at Antelope Valley uh, Community College, also another college in Los um, in California. Yeah, so it's great. So legal network. If you're an attorney, you listen to this. You want to get involved in Fire's work. Sign up for the legal network and to tease it. On this, <laughs> on this podcast, on this show first, uh, stay tuned for a relaunch of the Legal Network, hopefully coming before the end of the year. But people won't have to re-sign up. No, you will not. Okay, no, good. you will not. <laughs> uh, we, will, we will relaunch it. It will be bigger and better than ever before, so stay tuned. So let's, uh, let's pivot from the court of law into the court of public opinion. We have Sarah here who's been leading 
two really exciting projects for us this year, kind of new initiatives. And the most recent announcement is that we're getting involved in the international free speech game. So what are we doing there, Sarah, and kind of what prompted our involvement? Sure. So for the past few years, we've been watching more closely um, the issues raised by satellite campuses. Um, so these are campuses agreements. like NYU that has... Sure, and NYU's one we'll talk about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, American-owned university uh, will set up a campus abroad, somewhere in the Middle East, in China, um, and they will send faculty there. And um, obviously, most countries, unfortunately, don't have the strong free, uh, free speech protections we have in the United States. So there are serious concerns that are raised by these satellite campuses. So... A lot of times you can go to jail for what you say that would be protected in the United States. So they have hate speech laws or blasphemy, blasphemy laws, things that we haven't had in the United States. Insulting and, the king. That yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and some of these places do have kings, so it's yeah. uh, quite literally true. Um, so let's talk about some of the examples of what's sure. happened. So there's been cases at NYU and Georgetown where students or faculty have come against the censorship buzzsaw as they're studying abroad or teaching abroad. Sure. NYU has been a long-running one, and uh, it's recently blown up again just in December. Um, so at least three faculty members, might be more, have been um, denied access to the UAE when they were intending to, set, uh, to study at, or to teach at NYU's campus there because of their religious views, or in the case of one professor, because he had written extensively about um, the UAE's use of migrant labor mm -hmm. to build NYU's campus there. And so these professors have just been denied access to the country. And it and faculty have rightfully been questioning, you know, what's the free speech environment on this campus if we can't even go there because of what we said? Mm -hmm. um, and the issue has been raised again because um, this year there was a UK student who was arrested in the UAE on what seemed like falsified spying charges. He was actually going to be sentenced to life in prison. It was overturned, fortunately. Um, but, you know, that's in the UAE, as is NYU satellite campus. So again, faculty and students are asking, what's the deal here? What if this happens to one of us? What is NYU going to do? Mm -hmm. And that's the case of the uh, country coming after the, fa the fact, not even letting them set foot. But in some cases, like at Georgetown, the faculty have actually gotten to the country and tried to set up academic programs and been thwarted. Sure. So in Georgetown University in Qatar, uh, back in October, the uh, debate union at the school tried to um, host a debate about whether God should be depicted as a woman. Um, and sort of a big problem here is that Qatar has a blasphemy law. And for a lot of people, that is blasphemous. Uh, so the university actually shut down the debate and said, they're canceling it because there was this massive social media backlash. Uh, there was a hashtag, I think it was Georgetown insults God, and I think Georgetown was not pleased with that. Um, and they originally said that uh, these students didn't have permission to, um, for like the proper, proper approval process, which is something we see a lot as a explanation for censorship. Um, but they offered a later statement that actually said that um, the university supports free expression that respects the laws of Qatar. So <laughs> it's not very much. Yeah, so if the laws of Qatar don't allow for discussion on X, Y, and Z topics, it's pretty much you can't have a discussion about X, Y, and Z topics. So as our, our world becomes more globalized, I mean, it is important that students be able to experience other cultures, study sure. abroad, uh, things of that nature. But these satellite campuses 
under the imprimatur of American colleges and universities um, continue to pop up. And I think there are increasingly more and more of these satellite campuses, right? Sure. And we've also been watching um, a lot of reports over the last year, especially of um, Confucius Institutes in the United States. There have been, uh, there's been a lot of reporting about kind of quiet attempts at censorship. And these are Chinese, like, cultural exchange mm -hmm. student groups. Yes, usually that? with um, Chinese universities, they will have some partner in the United States, and uh, the Chinese government funds it. And it's, um, it's, it's meant to be, um, like, a cultural exchange, Chinese language learning program, and most of the time it is. But the problem is there have been documented incidents where... Uh, what's intended to be a cultural learning program turns into attempts by the Chinese government to control what is said on campuses about political issues in China. Yeah. So how do, is there any idea of how universities have been responding to these concerns? Is there a sense that they're just dismissing them or that there's conversation behind the scenes? Do we have any insight into that? Uh, it, it really depends on the university. So uh, over the past few months, in light of all of the focus on Confucius Institutes, um, quite a few universities are starting to shut theirs down. Um, you know, I'm not sure what kind of contracts they had with Confucius Institutes. I think it would be worth looking into what those are. Um, with other universities, it's hard to tell. Um, NYU has been, um, I think especially quiet. And with the story I mentioned earlier about the UK student who was yeah. jailed in the UAE, um, faculty were especially upset because they felt that NYU was just ignoring the reality of the situation. Yeah. Is there any liability concerns for these universities? Let's say I'm a parent, send my kid to NYU, and uh, there's a satellite campus. And I want, you know, they want to study abroad, so we're going abroad. But then you get put in jail for things you, you say online or false allegations of spying. I mean, it seems to me that universities are opening themselves up to, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know, but that seems like a possible concern. One thing that we're asking universities to do um, in the home and abroad commitment that, as Sarah's been discussing, we announced Yeah, and this, this is the crux of our right, campaign. Right, is, is to be extremely transparent about the nature of restrictions on academic and free speech uh, rights that students or faculty will face in the uh, satellite campus. Uh, so that could be useful for parents uh, or for family members who are sending a loved one overseas to study or to teach. Uh, and part of that, that ask to be transparent is, is a petition that we have, a, like a sort of a draft statement, a template statement that universities can adopt in entering into these partnerships. It's like our Chicago statement, not our Chicago statement, but Chicago's Chicago statement, but that we've been pushing. It sets a, like a goalpost or like a post of values. And this is what we're working for. This is what we value overseas. And we, we're not going to enter into a partnership that's devoid of these, these values. So Sarah, talk a little bit about the writing of that template and what we were considering and what we're trying to get um, universities to adopt and how. Sure. So um, as we've looked more into this issue, we've started to get the sense that it's it's not entirely clear um, to the members of academic communities what kind of deals their universities are making um, and what promises um, the university is making to students and faculty, um, you know, what is going on behind the scenes that they might not know about. Um, so our statement essentially pushes for um, four uh, factors. So the first is for universities with um, existing contracts with um, 
you know, other nations or NGOs. Um, it says in that they review those existing contracts, um, you know, consider whether they pose any threats to student or faculty rights. Uh, the second is for them to look at any future agreements they plan on making um, and to put the issue of academic freedom and free expression at the forefront of what they will what promises they'll make, what contracts they'll sign. Um, the third is that they will make those grants and agreements public. Uh, we think transparency is important and this could address a lot of the concerns students and faculty have about these agreements if they can at least know what's in them. Um, and finally, as Will mentioned, uh, we think it's especially important that they um, put in writing to students what kind of um, speech restrictions they should expect to fa face abroad, you know, what kind of laws regarding, um, you know, speech, religious expression they should expect to meet. Because students um, have a lot to gain from these experiences, but they have a lot to lose. And it's important that they go into this knowing full well what kind of risks they're taking. So on our website, we put out a press release. And if you want to get our press releases, by the way, you can go to our website and sign up on the listserv. It's very easy to do. But we put out a press release uh, announcing the new, this new campaign. And it, there's a petition on our website that you can go and say, I support this template statement. And if you sign it, leave your email address, your university affiliation, well, we're going to reach out to the university, right, and, and, and talk to them about this. Um, Will, lest anyone be concerned that we are engaging in mission creep, this is only applying to American universities with satellite campuses abroad. We're not taking on cases at, um, for example, Oxford. Or We'd like to make sure that free expression and academic freedom are values that are um, considered and celebrated and held dear by institutions that are purporting to offer a liberal arts education uh, across the country and across the world. So right now, if you're a student and you go overseas and all of a sudden the school that is supposed to protect your First Amendment rights back at home is saying, well, not so much out here, you should get in touch with us. Yeah, so we, we're not taking on cases right. <laughs> outside the United States, but uh, I, we've seen a lot of these issues popping up for um, UK universities as well, especially with uh, expansion attempts into Egypt. Um, so, you know, we're encouraging UK universities to look at this as well, and if they think this I mean, is something that... I mean, the statement can apply sure, yeah. It's so not one dependent on the First it's, Amendment. It's universal values of freedom of expression, academic freedom. Um, so, you know, we're encouraging universities around the world to take a look at it and consider if they could apply it to their campus. Right, and I should emphasize, just as Sarah has, that this is a first step. You know, we've been watching this. Sarah's done great work on our blog uh, over the last several years, uh, tracking some of these concerns, and... We think there's a lot of work to do here. And so this is kind of our initial foray. And stay tuned, because yeah. I think there'll be more. It's very exciting, uh, and I think an emphasis moving forward for us. Uh, Sarah, you've also uh, been working on a project this year. Um, well, the project is over, but you put out a report in July mm -hmm. about art censorship. And Fire, as Will knows, because he's longest-serving staffer on this panner, panel, I can't talk today. We were extinguishing fire earlier and I can't talk right now, but uh, uh, we've always seen art censorship cases yeah. at fire. And my perception is even that they're kind of ramping up yeah. in, the, in the past year. So Sarah, you did a good job in this art censorship report that you can find on our uh, publications page on our website of digesting all these cases historically. So what prompted that project? Uh, it's just what you said. I was noticing so many more of these art censorship cases and uh, what was interesting, and it's something that we talk about a lot in the report, is that so many of them are based off of a misunderstanding of what the artist intended to say. So 
we had quite a few cases of students who were protesting racism and trying to express that in an artistic way. And, you know, people would look at it and get the complete opposite message. And so we've had a lot of art censorship cases, even since after the report, of people looking at artwork, getting the wrong message from it, different from what the artist intended, perhaps, and saying, I don't like this, I want to take it down. Yeah, that's like the case we had a while back where uh, some artists manipulated the Confederate flag to send an anti-racist message, and uh, people said, just very superficial look at art, said, well, it's a Confederate flag, therefore it's de facto racist, therefore we must censor it. Yep. It's in the report. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the report, so you can, you can check it out there, but... Uh, the cases continue to come in. We There was a controversy over at uh, Indiana University Kokomo. Mm -hmm. What happened there? Sure. So in July, um, a, an arts professor at um, IU Kokomo, um, which is fun to say, uh, <laughs> he chose stu uh, two student sculptures from his metal arts class um, that he wanted to be disla displayed on um, concrete pads he'd requested. Um, so he picked them. Um, he spoke to university staff members. They put the sculptures up. Uh, he thought everything was good to go. Um, and then within a week, they were taken down. Um, the university didn't even warn him. They just kind of laid the sculptures outside the arts building. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he just yeah. had to find out that way. You dropped these. <laughs> sad as a visual. <laughs> um, but so obviously he was kind of curious, like, what happened here? Why are our um, sculptures sitting in front of the door? <laughs> so uh, he met with an administrator, and according to the professor, um, Gregory Steele, the administrator told him, well, we had complaints from the community, and that's why it was taken down. Um, why on earth would anybody have complained about these particular sculptures? So, yeah, one thing I haven't yes. mentioned so <laughs> it's a one of the sculptures is a large neon pink um, sculpture that looks a lot like female genitals, and uh, I guess that might have upset it's someone. It's a stylized. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's not an explicit depiction. No, no, it's, it's not explicit. It's... You can infer it. It is what it is. It's art. It's art. Visit the fire.org and see if you're... Yeah, exactly. Make your own judgment. But the student wrote... She gave comments to media later on as the controversy became more public, and it was you know, really interesting. She said that she was dealing with a recent sexual assault, and this helped her cope with it, You know, I guess kind of reclaiming her body and her idea of her femininity, and this was how she wanted to do it. So... Uh, the professor came to us, we looked into it, and we were like, that looks a little weird. Uh, so we wrote to the university, we expressed our concerns, um, and we also issued an open records request um, asking, you know, can you tell us about these complaints? They were cited to take down the sculpture, so where are they? This is something we've been doing a lot of lately, haven't we, Adam? <laughs> Adam's it? probably filing open records requests right yeah, now. Yeah, right, right now. now. <laughs> it's a university's claim, one justification for censorship. We call their bluff, file the open records request, see, okay, what are these complaints? They're public universities, so there are public records laws in many of these states, and there are no complaints, or very few. Yeah, so we, we got back um, a few documents from the university. None of them showed any existence of any complaints. Uh, we wrote um, another letter in December along with PEN America. Um, they joined with us on this, uh, on both letters, actually. And... Um, and by this point, these sculptures have been put back up. So we thanked IUK for doing that. We were like, you know, that's the first step. You did the right thing. Um, but again, you, to you told the professor there was complaints. You haven't shown us any evidence, and now you're staying silent on them. Uh, so eventually we got a response from um, the chancellor at IUK who 
um, told us that um, the university would be keeping the sculptures up through the end of the 2019 semester, which we're happy about. The professor is happy with it. What he wanted was his students to get their work back up. And so he's pleased and, you know, we're glad it's back up. And um, the university also said that they're going to work on a, uh, a policy for these art issues in the future. So hopefully that won't happen again. Hopefully it's a good one. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'd we'll love to, yeah, stay tuned. to look it over. Um, but uh, one thing I noticed um, and I wrote about it this week is um, the administrator who the professor met with in August who told him there were complaints confirmed late December to media that there were complaints. So. so stay tuned. We'll put that case in the show notes so people can take a look at the art and um, we'll can, I'll, I'll update people Do if there's like any update in that case. shark test or whatever it's called <laughs> with that. The uh, shark test? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> More trends. Adam, I want to bring you in. There's been some, a couple of controversies, it seems like, at this point, regarding porn filters. Now, did these discussions start happening at Notre Dame? Was that kind of like the place where people started to realize that universities were doing this? Well, this has uh, been going on for decades, uh, even before the internet. Well, I don't know if you can't really filter the internet before the internet, but this idea of keeping uh, or of censoring adult content um, because it's obscene, uh, has been a long-running debate in the First Amendment. Yeah, I mean, and it goes back to the days when um, the Postal Service would take magazines out the of the mail. Laws, yeah, yeah exactly. the Comstock laws. Uh, so today, or, or fairly recently, there was an effort at the University of Notre Dame uh, by uh, a student group that wanted to create a filter on their Wi-Fi network uh, to filter out adult content. Um, that we've also seen some indication that there might be a similar effort at, uh, I believe, Harvard. Uh, but so far, it looks like the universities have not been uh, amenable to actually doing this, uh, except for one. Uh, it was reported this past week uh, that I believe uh, it was the University of Arizona. Adam's pulling it up on his computer. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Arizona State University, um, which had uh, students that discovered that their uh, adult content was being blocked there uh, on the Wi-Fi there. And uh, when a reporter inquired at the university about this, they very quickly uh, removed that filter and explained that it was because during the summer they have students who are from high school or middle school on campus, uh, so they limit what people can access during the summer, and apparently that bled over into uh, the rest of the semester and just wasn't turned off. Uh, I think that raises significant First Amendment concerns because it is uh, exceedingly difficult to train an algorithm to recognize uh, what is obscene and what is not. Uh, it was famously said that uh, obscenity, you know, I, I will know it when I see yeah, it. Yeah, this is what Justice Potter on the Supreme Justice Court. Justice Potter Stewart. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if a Supreme Court justice can't recognize it, I don't think our technology is advanced enough to... Uh, decipher whether or not something meets the uh, test for legal obscenity under the First Amendment. Uh, that and uh, people use, you know, if, if you are an academic and you are going to study uh, what might appeal to people's prurient interests, uh, you might you know, wind up researching uh, adult content and you might have to access that. So when universities place these filters on uh, their internet services, uh, that limits the range uh, of material that academics can access. This, this isn't the first time uh, that porn has come up on college campuses this past year. There's also the issue uh, in the University of Wisconsin system, right? Where yes. the professor invited a yeah. uh, former porn star to campus to speak on like 
health issues. The chancellor invites a former adult film star, now sex educator and activist, uh, to speak at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. Yeah, it was Lacrosse. Lacrosse. They have a great track team, by the way. La uh, yeah. I went and visited there. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It'd be a former track star Nico Carino. <laughs> um, and so the, the chancellor uses some of his discretionary funds to bring uh, this former adult film star, now educator, to campus to discuss uh, issues around sexuality. As, I think it was as part of their free speech week. Really? If I'm not right. mistaken. Does that sound right to folks? I think I'm so. Pretty sure that's right. I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, and for having the audacity to bring an educator to campus to speak about something controversial, uh, this chancellor gets his knuckles wrapped by the president of the University of Wisconsin system. In fact, it was more than just a knuckle wrapping. He had a permanent letter uh, of disapproval placed in his file. He had his use of his discretionary fund audited. He uh, was to forego uh, a planned uh, salary increase, as I remember correctly, is some kind of financial uh, repercussion for him. And in other words, long story short, he's kind of taken to the woodshed for bringing someone to campus to speak about something that some other person might not like. And this is of particular note because the University of Wisconsin system uh, and their board and state legislators have made a lot of noise uh, within the past year about the importance of preserving uh, a robust commitment to hearing ideas that we might find disagreeable uh, and paying a lot of lip service to the importance of campus free speech. But here in a very high publicity, uh, high visibility test of that commitment, uh, they failed. In fact, they did the exact thing that the First Amendment prohibits, which is they imposed official government-backed uh, sanctions on somebody for doing something uh, that somebody else found distasteful. And that his academic freedom should protect his right to invite. Well, that's a tricky question, right? Because he's an administrator. So he's the, he's, he was not uh, a professor. If it would have been a professor bringing to But wasn't camps, he teaching a course or do I have that wrong? I, I don't recall that part. I, I remember he was coordinating uh, this series for, uh, as I think I remember correctly, Free Speech Week. But I don't think he was acting in what we could call like a strictly pedagogical sense, although, you know, bringing someone to campus to speak, you could make that argument. Anyway, long story short, uh, just a, a, a really depressing, uh, really embarrassing uh, uh, debacle for uh, the University of Wisconsin, one that will surely cast a pall on speech, because here you have the president of the entire system calling out one of his lieutenants, right? Calling out the chancellor of, of this campus. If I'm a student and I think, boy, I better keep my mouth shut uh, when it comes to talking about sex or, or politics or some other hot button issue, because who knows what'll happen to me? The, the, the chancellor just got uh, Or if you're a faculty member, or, I mean, you yeah, say he, my, he's not a faculty member, but you that know, was my next point, a lot right? of people invite people to campus sure. to speak. Sure, faculty I mean, member, department chair, I think if I invite somebody controversial, somebody who uh, rocks the, the boat a little bit, or even somebody, as is kind of a depressing point here, somebody who uh, has been involved in uh, a profession that somebody else might think was immoral or, or, uh, or, or otherwise objectionable. I mean, that, that to me really is one of the, the kind of most depressing parts of this, this controversy that broke out just before the holidays, is that there was all this emphasis on the person who was invited to speak, uh, whose name I'm blanking on right now, and I, I apologize, um, being a porn star. Whereas she had had this long, you know, and, and very interesting career after that. Legal that career. career. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, and being, being Nina Hartley, thank you so much, Adam. 
Um, getting old, man. <laughs> Starting to lose it. Uh, but, you know, so so you just kind of reduce this this person to just a, a kind of a cultural cipher instead of uh, thinking about what she actually said or had to say. And last note here, the the chancellor um, of the lacrosse system, Joe Gao, uh, who had been called out by the president of the system, um, issued a a I think commendable response uh, defending his action. Uh, and making clear that he thought uh, what he had done was uh, completely within his rights and within the spirit of sifting and winnowing that the University of Wisconsin system famously commits itself to. That is, you, you take a lot of ideas, you sift and winnow through them to find the truth. Uh, that's that's uh, the University of Wisconsin system motto, if I'm not mistaken, or one of their mission statements, and it's a famous statement. And it should be uh, noted just how far from that statement, the, the university uh, system strayed in this instance. So yeah, I, I got worked up about this one. It was a, it was a bad one. This is a classic free speech case uh, for me and a classic example of what uh, administrators should not do. Yeah, we got on the topic of this talking, of course, about the porn filters. Adam, this isn't the only movement we're seeing happening with universities and the internet. There's also been some social media tracking that universities are doing that, that might implicate First Amendment concerns, correct? There is, uh, and there's been some movement in the courts as well. Uh, so uh, listeners or viewers, I guess. Uh, yeah, both who, of them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I should mention, if you're a listener, uh, we're video recording this, so you can go to youtube.com slash thefireorg and check out what we're talking about and see Adam and I are wearing the same fleece. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, uh, listeners or viewers, I guess, who... Uh, have been paying attention to First Amendment developments might recall that there was a, a decision involving President Trump blocking his critics on Twitter. Uh, and the court there essentially held that uh, that violated the First Amendment because the president is obviously a government actor and they've opened up essentially a forum in the comments section uh, below his tweet. So uh, if members of the public are blocked from engaging with that uh, forum, that violates their First Amendment rights. Um, there have been a number of other decisions essentially saying that uh, when government actors uh, open up websites on Facebook uh, and create forums there, that might also be uh, a forum that is governed by the First Amendment. Um, so if you have a Facebook page, you post something and someone comments critically perhaps on what you posted, the link you posted, um, there might be First Amendment concerns if that comment is then deleted. And this was the subject of an EFF lawsuit, right? Correct. Uh, there's a Electronic university... Frontier Foundation. There's a university in Texas that is being sued by uh, people for ethical treatment of animals uh, with the backup of uh, the EFF uh, because the university had uh, limited what words could be posted on its Facebook page uh, after uh, PETA activists had been posting about uh, some animal testing that the university was doing. Uh, so Has there been a decision in that case yet? There was a very uh, non-substantive de decision where the court essentially said, rejected the university's motion to dismiss, uh, but did not explain it. Mm. Um, so uh, we wanted to find out what are universities doing? Uh, you know, is this you know, unique to this university in Texas, or are uh, universities blocking a lot of people and a lot of words uh, across the country. So we've issued public records requests to a little north of 200 institutions uh, asking for uh, the words that they've blocked uh, and the people that they've blocked. Uh, we've gotten a lot of responses back in, and I'm uh, hoping to reveal uh, what it is they've blocked uh, in the next couple of months. Okay, so we'll stay tuned for that.
we need to wrap up here, so I want to go around the horn and you know, just pick each of your brains what we're looking at in this next year, causes for concerns, causes for optimism. I, I think as we're wrapping up here, we've talked a lot about a lot of cases here. Mm -hmm. uh, none of them involved things that were headlines in 2015, 2016, safe spaces, trigger warnings, disinvitation attempts, which prompts the question to me, well, are these sort of cases on the decline? And are we looking at more of the sort of traditional censorship, traditional in quotes, that we were seeing at FIRE um, prior to that? Yeah, let me, I'm happy to jump in on that one. You know, the, the wild thing about the trigger Although war... Although the porn stuff is a culture war por issue. Porn stuff is always, you know, porn... <laughs> it's very old school. That's like very old school. If, if, you, if you, you know, anybody who's taken a, a, like any kind of introduction to archaeology class will tell you it's very old school, right? You uh -huh. go back and look at some Gresham urns or something. You see, <laughs> see old-timey pornography. Um, with regard to trigger warnings and safe spaces and all that, you know, I think some of that, frankly, was always more of a media discussion. Uh, than it was like an everyday fire casework discussion. Now, that's not to say we didn't see instances of people demanding safe spaces or using safe spaces as a sword and not a shield, as, as we discussed uh, on our blog and internally here quite a bit. Uh, Two-second version of that is freedom association protects your right to form a safe space with others of like mind and to use that as a shield from government interference. Uh, but you can't go on the offensive and say, hey, this entire campus is now a safe space. I don't like what you have to say. Shut up. So yeah, kind of using Sid, the notion of safe spaces to uh, to the silence to define the permissible mm -hmm. scope of right. conversation. That's right. So and and likewise with trigger warnings. I mean, we had uh, a case um, uh, in was it Arizona where a student demanded that a trigger warning be placed on a graphic novel uh, syllabus, a, a class offered by an English department about graphic novels because she read uh, some of the stuff and it offended her. Mm -hmm. uh, so Why the Last Man is my favorite comic. That's right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she, should, she said, you know what, I was offended, this is execrable, this is despicable, there needs to be a warning for students. And the school first acquiesced and then, you know, in response to fire and a bunch of other groups like Comic Legal Defense Fund decided to do the wrong, right thing. Um, so yeah, so we had a lot of human cry, a lot of hullabaloo about uh, safe space and trigger warnings, but the nuts and bolts, you know, the dailiness of our work here is kind of classic old school censorship. Someone in power doesn't like what you have to say, either that person's on power on campus, that person's on power off campus, and they try and shut you up. And that work will continue. Now, really quick, just what I'm looking at for 2019 and beyond, uh, we have a number of uh, cases uh, that are still out there that we're waiting for decisions on. Uh, our Teresa Buchanan case, uh, Professor Buchanan, uh, our case against Louisiana State University. Uh, we have a uh, case that we've been waiting for, a decision for, for quite a long time now, um, in uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, involving uh, the Koala, notorious <laughs> student newspaper, the Koala, and the University of California, San Diego's decision uh, just to shut down uh, funding to media, uh, student media altogether. Um, so, in know, order to get in order the, to, to in order to, to shut cut off the koala, the koala yeah, yeah uh, cutting off the nose to spite the face. Spite the face. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know uh, we've got a lot of cases out there uh, that are still ongoing, and uh, even though some of them have come home to uh, good endings, like uh, Chicago State and Pierce, uh, we've got more to go. So we'll kind of stay tuned. I think it's going to be an interesting year. Yeah, and I should mention when we're talking about the year, this is Fire's 20th anniversary. And I'm, yeah, I'm right. scrolling through my calendar right now so I can tell everyone the date we are celebrating that anniversary in New October, York City. Is it October 20? Guess. 29th? I got it. No, it's 24th. Ah, it looks like. I'm getting old, man. It's on my calendar as Fire's 24th? 20th anniversary gala. Um, I believe we have a webpage up on our website. 
uh, where you can go and get the details about that. I think it's at the Mandarin Hotel it in New York City New York. on the 24th. That's a Thursday. So um, our longtime supporters and new supporters, of course, we'd love to see you there. Yeah. Uh, so stay tuned for that. We'll be announcing keynotes hopefully sometime in the coming weeks and months. Yep. They should be exciting. Uh, Adam, I know you're tracking social media stuff. Is there anything else that you're seeing on the case intake front that we should be aware of? Uh, I'm watching two things. Uh, one, I'm watching student journalists uh, because the student newspapers are facing not only financial pressure uh, and you know, addressing the way that uh, you know, printed newspapers are kind of on their way out uh, and they are trying to shift to online publication or some other way of getting the news out to uh, a small community. Uh, and uh, they also face institutional pressures from institutions that are increasingly uh, mindful of their public perception uh, and may try to impose limits on uh, how students can report, uh, how they can record, uh, and who they can speak to. So that's one angle that and I'm looking I, I believe we have like National Student Press Freedom Day coming up here. Do you remember? I think that's it's this at the end of this month. I believe it's January 30th. Yeah, January 30th. That's what I thought. That's a Wednesday. Will's looking it up. I am. You can chime in if we're wrong, but. The other thing. The other thing I'm looking at uh, are uh, there's this increasing tendency for uh, people to identify uh, professors' extramural statements, uh, especially what they say online or uh, in their academic work, uh, whether inside or outside the classroom, as a way to portray uh, professors or universities as uh, particularly or, or too liberal uh, and, or outrageous or you know, basically playing the game of, you know, look at what this uh, outrageous professor said. Uh, universities are, again, mindful of their institutional interests uh, uh, in terms of a, a PR message, uh, and they're also mindful of uh, increasing pressure by legislators to cut their budgets. So uh, you have this kind of dynamic that can emerge where uh, a university, in order to undercut potential legislative pressure, uh, will take action against a professor who attracts uh, uh, commentary via Twitter or... We saw uh, this with Professor Mark Lamont Hill over at Temple University, Rhonda Girard over at Fresno State, uh, Jim Livingston at Rutgers, and then uh, Lisa long, Durden over at... Um, yeah, it's a long Essex. County, County, yeah. County College. Uh, I, I think we're going to see uh, more of that uh, because universities view uh, announcing an investigation or... Uh, terminating someone or taking some type of action as a means of uh, showing critics that they are taking action even if they don't intend to follow through. Kind of on the flip side Marika. of that, actually, and thinking about next year, what we're, what we're going to see, I think the, the uh, other side of that is you see universities also starting to grapple with the their First Amendment liability in those situations and are you see some universities starting to work through how to handle that in a in a thoughtful way um, that doesn't you know that that shields against the the those pressures and uh, in, in a way that is uh, protective of academic freedom and First Amendment rights of the professors who have generated the internet mob. Have we seen any university do that right yet? Or are we still waiting? I, for so it? Rutgers, yeah. right? Like mm -hmm. that's the so we uh, so Jim Livingston at um, uh, who's a professor at Rutgers who we represented um, this fall when he was found guilty of. Uh, Racial harassment, uh, racial harassment um, by the, uh, the the 
universities equal opportunity um, office. Uh, it was kind of an uh, anti-discrimination um, investigation of his uh, Facebook posts, which, so he, Professor Livingston lives in Harlem. He's a white professor, um, longtime resident of Harlem. He got mad about, uh, about like some white kids at this local restaurant he was at making a fool of himself. So he goes on Facebook and, uh, and does an angry post about gentrification in his neighborhood and wanting to resign from the white race. He was hereby resigned from the white race. Um, generated a internet outrage mob. Um, so he gets investigated at first by Rutgers, by this office in Rutgers for, for this uh, Facebook post, found guilty of racial harassment. We wrote in um, to the university um, with a demand letter saying, uh, saying that you, you need to reverse this decision or we're, we're going to bring a lawsuit. Um, and uh, President Barkey at Rutgers University did immediately respond and remand the decision to, uh, to back to the office that originally put out that, uh, that finding and said, you need to reconsider this in the light of our institutional commitment to uh, the First Amendment and the academic freedom of our professors. So, and he had previously made a number of statements that were almost perfectly on point with regard to this sort of controversy, yeah, the, yeah, the president. Right. Yeah. So, and he went and uh, President Barkey actually went a step further and said, you know, we're, we're in, in so many words, like, we're seeing this happen more often. So we're going to convene a committee of uh, First Amendment experts to look at these issues when they come up. So when you have a, uh, a faculty member who has, has gotten in trouble under university policy now in such a way that implicates their, for their academic freedom, First Amendment rights, um, that, that decision is now going to, or that investigation is now also going to have input from this, this uh, kind of expert committee of, of scholars and, and a, academics. Is that a model we'd want other schools to adopt? Well, I'm I, th assuming, I think yeah. it's a great, I think it's a, it's a great idea. Yeah, it's a failsafe <laughs> against the inter outrage right. mob, right? So right. if you got the outrage mob storming campus and saying, take action, fire this professor, you can say, hey, experts, can we do that? And they say, nope. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, they can't cool. do anything. It's another letter we don't have to write. <laughs> right, exactly. And there, and you know, it's them. It's it, if you're going to, if the if the institution is going to purport to value academic freedom and uh, and, and its professors' First Amendment rights, then that's that's a, a great way to self police, right? To say, you know, here, like let's let's bring in let's bring in our own resources and because uh, they're using professors, their own professors and law professors and whatnot. Um, to to help us look at these issues. Yeah, so we'll stay tuned on that front, see if more universities try and adopt that model as the internet outrage mob um, seemingly never goes away. So yeah. those controversies won't go away. Sarah, what about you? Uh, so this year, I'm just going to keep watching. Um, there's a lot of universities being asked to consider their ties to China and Saudi Arabia, especially given the uh, human rights violations going on in both of those countries. Yeah, in Saudi Arabia, there's a Jamal Khashoggi thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so there's that. And with China, they're, you know, putting up re-education camps. Uh, so there's there's a lot of Which human... Which opposes, right? <laughs> yes. I'm going to go on the record and say, <laughs> say strong oppose. Oh, Oh man! I don't know. I guess it depends on what the education is. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just got fired. Um, <laughs> 
So those are bad. And um, <laughs> she's the outrage mom. <laughs> so universities are uh, being asked to consider their ties, you know, in light of these issues. Um, so we're going to see um, how they respond to that. I think it'll be interesting. Um, and we also have some other projects that we're working on um, that will come out later this year. So stay tuned for those. Okay. Well, the, the, the three things I want to say before um, I close it out here, again, 20th anniversary, October 24th, check out our website. Uh, we're launching a new website, speaking of websites, yeah. hopefully by the end of the month. It might be next month, so it'll be a new, improved, different look and feel, uh, and it'll have the 20th anniversary logo at the top. So that will be cool. It's sharp. Yeah. Yeah. And then also next month, we're having our annual 10 Worst Colleges for Free Speech list. Um, also just, sharp. Yeah, also <laughs> sharp. I'll just put that on the table. I'm not going to tease any of the schools that might be on it, but we just had a meeting yesterday, and we've got a pretty good idea of where we're going with that. So stay tuned. Mm -hmm. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese and Chris Maltby. You can learn more about So To Speak, as always, at twitter.com slash free speech talk or like us on facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast we take email feedback too at so to speak at the fire.org it's always good to hear from everyone and get your uh, requests for questions or topics to discuss in future episodes so please do that and if you enjoyed this episode i ask you every week to consider leaving us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you, else you get your podcast reviews are probably the best way for us to get new listeners um attracted to the show. Can I get in on that? Sure. If you didn't like anything that you heard or you liked it, you can also email me. I don't, know, I don't get enough emails. So will at the fire.org. I'd like to put myself out there. Yeah, and if you were going to email have, me about with any criticism, you can just direct email, those to Will. Send it right over to me. Yeah. Uh, but until next time, uh, thanks everyone again for listening. <laughs>